TCS Legends is powered by Mitel. For all your unified communications and customer experience needs, visit mitel.com. I'm Duncan McLeod, and I'd like to welcome you to Season 1, Episode 1 of TCS Legends, a brand new podcast series from Tech Central, powered by Mitel, that, as the name implies, chats to some of the legends who helped South Africa's tech sector become what it is today. We have some great guests lined up for season one of TCS Legends over the next eight weeks. So I invite you to subscribe to us on YouTube. You can visit youtube.com slash techcentral to do that. You can also get us through your favorite podcasting app. Simply search Tech Central one word in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Pocket Casts, or wherever you happen to get good podcasts. And you will find all of our shows, including TCS Legends. Now, I thought a good place to start a show, a series on tech legends, would be a discussion with someone who has worked closely with many of them in South Africa over, over the years. And in fact, he's a bit of a legend in his own right. Uh, I first met him when he was a director at Merrill Lynch and was the country's top-rated IT analyst at the time. Since then, he's been involved in innumerable ventures in financial services, including the launch of Macquarie First South. He, de he describes himself today simply as a director of companies. Dr. Duarte de Silva, welcome to TCS Legends and thank you for your time. Thank you. As mentioned, Duarte has known and still knows many of the legends in the local technology industry. Uh, we're going to be having a look at a small set of, subset of those people today. But before we do that, Duarte, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. Um, you have a PhD, if I'm not mistaken, from Wits University. It's a PhD in engineering, if I'm not mistaken. What was, your, what was the focus of your study there? Yes, I've got a PhD in fluid mechanics, Department of Mechanical Engineering. I lectured for two years as well. Mm -hmm. Managed to complete my PhD at the age of 25 and then proceeded never to work as an engineer in my life. Okay. You'd, you'd been to Marist, Marist Brothers, is that right? Marist Brothers Observatory, subsequently uh, say, uh, called Sacred Heart. Okay. And so why did you study engineering if you never became an engineer? I was good at maths, I was good at science, and um, in terms of career guidance, you know, it was either doing a straight BSc or doing something that perhaps could be commercially uh, viable as a profession. Right. And literally, uh, career guidance was so poor that um, I took a bash. After one day at lectures, I realized I never wanted to work as an engineer, but, you know, my parents couldn't afford for me to flip-flop, so it was done. So you finished it. Okay. So I finished it. All right, all right. Have you ever been able to put fluid dynamics as a, as a, as a what do you call it, as a discipline into uh, anything you do professionally? You know, engineering is a great background, and specifically because it teaches you how to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people with great educations that do not have that simple skill. An engineer basically takes the known knowledge about science and mathematics and creates something, mm -hmm. solves a problem that, that is needed in society or for a particular, for a particular use. Mm -hmm. Well, take us through your career history. I first met you when you were a director at Merrill Lynch. I think it was in 1995, if I remember correctly. It might have been 96 or 7. Actually, I just joined the Financial Mail, so it would have been 1997. Uh, you were... IT analyst. Uh, you were, I think, the first IT analyst in the country. Uh, uh, certainly, you, you uh, helped define the category. There was no, you were saying before we started recording, there was no IT category on the JSC and everything was sitting under engineering and electronics. Um, what was it like in those days covering, covering the tech industry and writing about these na fairly nascent companies at that time, which have gone on to become multi-billion rand enterprises? 
So I started in Brokey in October 1994, uh, having had a, a limited and brief career in uh, management consulting, mm -hmm. which actually was very useful, and entered into the into the industry at that stage as the electrical and uh, electronics uh, sector analyst and the motor analyst. Okay. So my very very first report was actually on Toyota. Ah. Um, which was read by absolutely nobody because it had a market cap of about a billion rand, uh, a free float of about 20 cents, and um, you know one shareholder, which happened to be Alan Gray. Okay, okay, interesting. Okay, so your, your first report on the tech sector was on who? So my first report uh, on the tech sector was actually on dimension data. Okay. I wrote my first piece in February 1995, went to go and meet with Jeremy Ord mm -hmm. and um, had a uh, rundown in terms of what the business was. The, I believe that, if I recall correctly, they just bought uh, SPL, uh, a listed mm -hmm. software company at the time. And from that, I immediately uh, went and identified similar sector uh, companies in the electronic sector being Siltec, Mm -hmm. Dimension Data, QData, IBM, and a company called Persitech. And I subcategorized those as IT companies because there wasn't any such classification at the time. And then I produced a sector piece. Mm -hmm. Stemming from that, you know, we were sponsoring brokers to a company called Ultron, and uh, they got very upset that I wrote my first piece on, uh, on, com on a company that wasn't there. So I had to do a piece on Alton. <laughs> and Volfenta. And Volfenta. Who are we going to talk about uh, in, in, this, uh, in this first episode of TCS Legends today? I'm looking forward to that. But take us through briefly the rest of your career. What, what did you do after you left Merrill's? After, I, in 1998, I'd been poached by a, uh, two listed entities, uh, being Peregrine and African Harvest, to set up a technology private equity fund, which we set up called Tata. Mm -hmm. Tata had a short life because we then reversed it into McCarthy Bank. I became the deputy chairman of McCarthy Bank and, the, and Cyril Ramaphosa became the chairman through my introduction. And the idea was to convert this banking license into a specialist tech investment business. We did that for three years and we had a very successful um, listing offshore of a company called Iocor. Mm -hmm. And... Um, as a consequence of that success, the partners um, all decided uh, that they no longer wanted to be in business with, with one another, okay. and um, and things got a little bit unpleasant. So in 2001, I left to join the J&J Group. Initially as a consultant, they wanted me to join um, as a participant in J&J. I declined that offer. I this said, was the two Naidus, uh, Jay Naidu and Jay Naidu and Jandra Naidu, correct. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Eventually, I agreed to to uh, to consult to them effectively as their chief investment officer. After two years, uh, a former colleague of mine, James Lubbett, <clears throat> the top-rated banking analyst, uh, also joined the team. And we said, you know what? Why don't we form a new financial services business that's steeped in? Uh, we don't need to convert anything. We'll create it from the ground up. And uh, that was the start of First South. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. First South then became... Macquarie First South, and then in, uh, and we grew that as a successful investment bank together with the Australian partners. In two thousand end of two thousand and fifteen, we Macquarie decided that they wanted to own a hundred percent of the business, and so we were bought out six days before uh, Mr. Nene was fired, uh. and um, and uh, and and we essentially exited the business. Okay, good timing. 
great timing. <laughs> so timing is everything in investment, right? Absolutely right. And <laughs> I haven't always got that right. Okay. So what have you been up to since then? My health was, uh, I went through a bad health patch, mm-hmm. but I've kept busy notwithstanding and uh, some, some uh, serious health issues. But I took up uh, the role of um, the chairman of a listed company called Huge, which I uh, left about a year ago. And the idea initially was that uh, I would uh, become actively involved in that business to turn it into an investment business. It uh, kind of didn't work out that way. And so I decided to to leave last year. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've been involved in in numerous other ventures, but I guess my health only fully recovered beginning of last year. And so I've been focusing on a number of things, you know, uh, uh, ranging from mining projects to my latest venture, which is in the asset management industry. Mm-hmm. Not really a new venture because there was a business called Element Asset Management, which uh, I became a, a shareholder through First South in 2008. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just uh, reigniting that relationship and uh, working with the, the team and new participants to build up that asset management business, essentially okay. financial services. Okay, okay. You mentioned your health scare. You, um, you lo- lost your left arm four years ago. I was hoping to meet Alfred today, who's, uh, who's the bionic replacement, but it's, uh, Alfred, I believe, is in for, for, for some service. Um, tell, tell us a bit about that, uh, that, that process and, and uh, what happened and, um, and uh, as much as you're prepared to share, of course. Uh, yeah, no problem. You know, uh, I, I developed a condition in my mid-20s, mm-hmm. which was essentially a vascular malformation. It was obviously there from birth, but with no uh, vis- visible or physical uh, sensation there too. What it is is um, basically a direct link between the arteries and veins. Okay. And over the years, I had numerous procedures. The condition is reasonably rare, and each procedure I had was by competent and uh, solid professionals, mm-hmm. but with limited knowledge of the condition. So every time I had a procedure, it got worse. And over the years, I must have had yeah, r- ranging north of 50 operations and procedures. Sure. Every time would give temporary relief and then get worse. <clears throat> so uh, being a vascular condition, and I guess having a doctorate in fluid mechanics uh, helped me understand <laughs> it a little bit, but probably the worst possible um, activity for a condition of, of, of that sort is flying because of the okay. change in barometric pressure. Mm-hmm. And guess what I had to do on a regular basis? Mm-hmm. In my Macquarie uh, First South career, I was probably da- flying down to Cape Town to visit our business once a week. And I was flying overseas at least once a month. And uh, it was extremely painful. Yeah. So the condition, essentially, I just learned to live with it. But it got worse mm-hmm. and worse and worse until eventually it was unmanageable and it started to basically explode and bleed. And I needed some treatment. And very painful as well. I and very painful. So um, I started to have some physical treatments. Unfortunately, I picked up the hospital superbug in 2019. Oh, no. That affected my heart. And uh, during the operation, the arm actually became unmanageable. Uh, roll uh, a few months forward, yeah. it just uh, essentially needed to be amputated. It was uh, either that or, or lose my life. And actually the best thing I possibly could have done because... Okay. Essentially, one week after getting out of hospital was the last time I took a painkiller. Oh, wow, wow, wow! And uh, and your bionic arm is that the right term for it? It is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> how did you uh, How did you meet Alfred? What's the backstory there? <laughs> Essentially, uh, look. Uh, funnily enough, the healthcare for for amputees is absolutely awful. If you go and look at your policy, yeah. you know, all of us that have medical aid probably take it on the basis of 
general cover. Mm. And there's about one million things that can go wrong with you. And uh, I can guarantee you that not every one of us has gone through and looked at each one of the subsets. But if you go and look at your policy, I guarantee you that the limit that you will get on a prosthesis is 22,000 rand. Wow. And that is across the board. Wow. <clears throat> and I can promise you that uh, that doesn't even get you a toenail. Mm-hmm. Probably your first consultation with a specialist. <laughs> so um, essentially, I consulted a number of orthotists. Mm-hmm. They made a couple of recommendations. Unfortunately, I met a bit of a charlatan who then ran away uh, to Australia, leaving me with a, a two million rand device that couldn't work. Oh, no. And then I found a, an odd guardian angel who basically has, over the last two years, taken a device that wasn't actually suitable for me, right. made it work. And uh, he has done so actually free of charge. He's an incredible individual. You know, um, it is quite a thing to go through. You know, you've gone through the trauma of losing a limb yeah. and trying to, you know... Uh, can't get to grips with that, and you're actually getting um, ripped off, and it's actually also in the middle of COVID. So no insurance company wants to hear from you. Mm -hmm. No, um, I've laid criminal charges, but, you know, Mm. uh, as these things go, if you don't have a special contact, Mm. you know, and if you don't use the R200 form, you're probably not going to uh, get anywhere. So what does Alfred do? Um, Do you have full functionality in your arm? uh, Having had the amputation above the elbow, it means I've got essentially two joints. So there is uh, a motor on the elbow that uh, one needs to activate, Mm -hmm. and it's activated through sensors in the socket that connect to your muscles. So you learn essentially like a manual car, you know, to to, to activate it through twitching in a particular sequence. So you can move the elbow up and down. Then I don't have the the wrist rotator. I just do that manually. But then there are uh, motors in each one of the joints of the five fingers, Mm -hmm. which enable you to do pretty sophisticated um, movements. So I can do that on a mouse. I can hold things. I can do a shoelace. Um, And it is, of course, intensive training. Yes. And again, like a manual car, when you first get into a car, your dad says, you know, put in the clutch, change the gear, take your foot off the accelerator, put your foot back in the accelerator. How am I going to remember all that? You know, uh, a month or two later, it becomes second nature. Right. So it literally becomes muscle memory. <laughs> exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, but I there to... are some really good people in this country, and so this yeah. particular gentleman and facility um, has been outstanding. But I've discovered that one of the reasons why medical aid doesn't provide it, because I must uh, reiterate that notwithstanding having the top uh, scheme, um, I got my 22,000 rand. Okay. For, for two million rand device, which excludes actual fitment and right. consultation. Sure, sure. Right, Duarte, let's talk. Let's talk legends. Um, there's a long list. We've uh, we've we've spoken uh, um, extensively before uh, we recorded this episode today, and uh, we've decided to to whittle it down to five names. But there was a list this long, and. The list could probably be this long, and we're probably never going to get to everyone, and we are going to miss some names. So if we do forget about you, apologies. It's my fault, not Duarte's. Um, but um, with the names like David Can, the late founder of Mustic, uh, Rob Shooter, who ran MTN for a while and has been involved in the sector for a number of years, uh, names like Ronnie Price, Serge Bellamont, uh, Tony Farah, and Dylan Taba. Uh, Benjamin and Isaac Mopatlane, Mario Pinheiro, Mark Shuttleworth, the Levy Brothers at Blue Label, Duncan Simpson-Crabe in the telecoms industry, 
Donna Bass and Derek Crean in a front range uh, and work group, I think, uh, was the, the name right, of their yeah. business. Uh, the list goes on and on and on, but um, we, we could have spoken about all of these people today, but uh, Duat, we would have been sitting in the studio the entire day talking about them. So we've decided to lift, um, whittle it down to five names. Some of the names I've already mentioned will be guests on this show, either in season one or perhaps season two. Um, but we, we whittled it down to five names of five people who had a really big impact in the 80s and 90s in building South Africa's technology industry. And those people are, who we're going to be talking about in some detail today, are Jeremy Ord um, and, and his team at Dimension Data, Rumanitz, who um, uh, some people may not remember now. It's been a long time since uh, he was in this industry, uh, at least 20 years, 25 years. He was a CEO of a company called Persatel, which eventually morphed into what is today BCX, part of Telcom. Uh, we're going to have a look at Bill Fenter, the founder of Ultron and his sons. Uh, we're going to chat about Jens Montanana, the founder of, of Datatech. And, of course, we're going to talk about Alan Lock Craig, uh, the former CEO of Vodacom. Um, but we're going to start with uh, Dimension Data, and I think it's fortuitous, actually, since your first report was on Dimension Data, Dwight. Um, so we're going to – in fact, we've got some of your old reports here from Merrill Lynch. I, uh, I remember these from the – from the old days, actually, um, and one of these here. Here's your, is this, was this the first report that you ever produced on Dimension Data? That is the first report I ever produced on Dimension Data. Is this data. the whole thing? or uh, It was just a, a company visit, and, mm -hmm. and um, there were subsequent detailed reports on the company, but it was essentially just a flag, a broken note. Right. Thing. I went to meet with management. This is what I thought. These are the highlights, and this is my recommendation. Dated the 13th of February, 1995, you had a buy recommendation on Dimension Data. They were then at... 19 rand and 75 cents. What did they peak at? 100 rand. About 100 bucks. When they listed in the UK and then there was that flash um, uh, trade from 75 to 100. Okay. Because they were included in the, in the UK index. Okay. So I'd already left as a broker in those days, but um, it was spectacular. Yeah. I think they peaked. I think it's more important to talk about market cap than uh, share price because there were a number of share issues, splits, etc. So I can't remember. I think there was a share split uh, post that. But okay. um, their market cap was 100 billion rand. And I well remember my statements in the morning meeting that uh, the market cap of Dimension Data now exceeded all the commodity companies put together in South Africa. Wow. Wow. That was at the peak. That was at the peak. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And then, of course, Dimension Data got into all sorts of trouble. They went and bought a, an American company. Uh, they got into a bidding war, I think it was, with Compaq, was it? That's correct. To buy an asset there. What was that business they were trying to I can't to remember, but it was founded by a Mexican guy, and it was yes. a disaster. Yeah. It was an absolute disaster. And, and here's another report you did with uh, Jacob Greenblatt. Um, this was dated February 97. IT, going boldly where no South African company has gone before. And I love these cartoons that you used to have on the cover of these Merrill Lynch reports. So who, who did these for you? I had a, it was essentially the same guy, and I, forgot, I can't remember his name. I'll have to oh. look at those. Uh, but he used to do the front covers of the Financial Mail. And, oh, did he? Okay. Uh, and I still have the originals in watercolor, and they're hanging in my garage. Amazing, amazing. Um, so this is Jeremy Ord here, Walking on Water, there's sharks in the water. And, and who is this supposed to be over here? That is Pit Denboer of QData. And yeah. the reason why, you know, uh, um, there was exchange control in those days. Yeah. And really, um, he's sitting in amazement looking how Jeremy has got uh, over all these obstacles to go and buy a stake in Comtech in Australia. 
and uh, in the background there's uh, Madiba and uh, Derek Keys looking on and, and support. But QData was essentially stranded on the South African island whilst uh, Jeremy started ah. his international expansion. And I love the hats, the symbolic of sort of Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> exactly, buying the Australia. So, you know, there was a lot of thought going, go, that went into um, into these. And if you actually look at some of the pictures, for instance, in my Ultron report, you know, uh, Bob Pretorius of Rowenet is taking a punch at, uh, at uh, Bolfenter, who's neatly sidestepping it. And, Myra, and Myron Berzak is, in, is the referee in the background. And you'll recall that Ultron subsequently did buy Voltex and Myron Berzak. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, the CEO of uh, Plessy is uh, out there in the, at the bottom sending out smoke signals. I, didn't re- I really didn't believe much of what he said. And that was <laughs> my cryptic way of saying, of saying that. <laughs> Real legends. Um, how many of these reports did you do in the end? Oh, yeah. I, this is just a sample that I brought yeah. along for fun. Damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead with internationalization. Um, this was a. Uh, who, who are these guys? That's Rubanitz. So that, that was my, uh, because subsequent to IT, I, I took over the um, industrial holdings uh, uh, portfolio, mm-hmm. which at the time was the most important. And. Um, and, see, and actually, I, I, at the time, I headhunted Peter Armitage to come across from Deutsches to join me to do the industrial holding sector together. Okay. Unfortunately, the day he joined was the day I had to leave because he'd gone on gardening leave and I wasn't able to communicate that I'd been headhunted to set up a private equity fund. So he uh, was not all too uh, content with uh, my <laughs> departure, although we're still very good friends and notwithstanding. Peter Armitage, Russell running Anchor Capital, is he? He is the founder okay. and running Anchor Capital very successfully. Okay. Right. So let's talk about uh, the legends, or the legend of Jeremy Ord and, and his team, because he had a, a team of very competent people around him. When did you first meet uh, Jeremy? Basically, uh, probably February 1995. And your first impressions of him were? Well, you know, um, very amiable, um, smart, intelligent guy. The funny thing is I only really got to appreciate Jeremy Ord in uh, 2014. Okay. Why is Long that? after we started to engage. You know, we used to, Jeremy had a great team. And, uh, you know, if you go back, and I used to think about this in terms of his professional cricketing background, he's a great team captain. And actually, I had very little to do with Jeremy other than social engagement. And he's a very congenial, very amiable person. So it was great. But my interaction was really with his team because like any good captain, he promotes his team. Mm. And in fact, many times I'd be called to do a presentation at the old Dimension Data Campus and and the Wanderers Building. Yes, Epps and Downs. And And I'd sit there and there's this guy, you know, sitting on a tall seat and and I'm presenting to his executives at a strategy session, and he's staring out the window, and I thought, geez, that's bloody rude. <laughs> <laughs> you know, roll the clock, probably, what, let me work that out, uh, um, probably nearly 20 years later, and now I'm engaging with him on a, on a transaction. And now I'm sitting in, in my home study, and we're having a discussion, mm-hmm. and in the same, you know, all, he hasn't changed one bit. Staring out the window. But what I realized is, you know, I'd start explaining, and said, stop, I got it. And that's really why I realized, and I knew he was smart, but he's actually off the side. He's already ahead of you. (laughs) People think he's just a marketing guy. He's a superb marketing partner. Mm. He's actually incredibly smart, Mm -hmm. and he is way ahead of uh, most people. And so, you know, 
many times I'd start the sentence and say, yes, I've got that. Okay, we can move on. How about a glass of wine? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I remember you're right. Though, um, when I first engaged with the company, also around the late mid to late 1990s, um, I, I was interfacing with many of the people on his team. He was there all the time, but... Um, I guess I spent more time with people like Richard Kame, who was also integral to the Dimension Data business and growing that business in the early days. Actually, Doc Watson and other so, people. Uh, mm. Being financial, I spent a lot of time with Malcolm Rutherford, the then yeah. CFO, and then you know the the team. It's Peter Hurd on networking, mm. and then Robbie on on the software, and then uh, and then subsequently after that, when they bought Internet Solutions, would would have been David Frankel. But actually, um, in terms of real input. It was uh, Richard came, yeah. and really, to me, Richard was fundamental rather than integral. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Richard actually, what they really worked out is that don't really need to invent anything in South Africa. Yeah. So off they'd send Richard to the US, who'd go and look at new um, and evolving uh, trends, mm-hmm. wait for three or four, six months to see which are the winners, and then bring it back mm-hmm. because. You don't have to be leading age over here. But you, and that was the way that uh, uh, they identified Cisco as the, as the, the future winner in networking because yeah. there were a whole bunch of products at the time. And I can't even remember what they were. But uh, there were serious, serious competitors, whether they came from 3Com or HP. Yeah. And Richard had the ability with that and a variety of other things to look and, and bring back uh, that to the team. Mm. And they really did operate as a as a cricket team, everyone had mm. their task, but at the end of the day, they succeeded because they were incomparable actually mm. as a as a team. You know, if we compare that to someone like Persitol, it yes. was a very different dynamic, and we can go to that later. In fact, yeah, they're, 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 as you mentioned, their head office was built around a cricket pitch. It was yeah. built in a cricket oval. Uh, late, much later on, they they kind of switched sports and became much more involved in golf, and then I think in Cycling, uh, I guess it's where the, how the executives' passions changed over the years. Um, and eventually, of course, they went on to become the technology partner for the, for the Tour de France. And NTT, Correct. the successor to Dementia Data, is still a sponsor of that, of that, uh, of that tournament. But I remember meeting in, with executives in, in, in the Oval in Bryanston uh, over the years. Were they keen cricket players themselves as well? well? Jeremy, you know, there was the great Transvaal cricket team. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, I can go through the names, you know, the, the Henry Fotherham's, the J- J- Jimmy Cooks. So uh, Jeremy was, in, uh, and Ray Jennings, and those, it yeah. was, was basically in and out of the A and B, and B team. That A team was probably uh, as strong as most international cricket teams. So he was very much a professional cricket player. So he was uh, essentially the, usually the captain of the B team and occasionally in the A team. So he was a great cricket player. Okay. In his time, so they they do have uh, cricket in their genes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, Cisco, that was uh, the key to their early success. That relationship with to, with uh, Cisco. I remember uh, who was the CEO? It was John Chambers who was the CEO That's of Cisco right, yes. back then, and, and him and Jeremy were very very close. Yeah, look, I mean, there were a number of, uh, and Cisco will be what they would get remembered for, yeah. and you know, and really the. There was a time, it was interesting, where I actually spoke to John Chambers. He said the two biggest distributors in the world of Cisco just happened to be South African companies. How yeah. incredible was that? So it was Persitol. Ah, Persitol. And 
dimension data. Did data Tech later become a Cisco distributor? Is they did, but uh, long, 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 long after. after. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, you know, uh, not long after, but you know, full system integrated with only those two. And basically, between the two of them, they had bought, you know, um, uh, significant players. Um, Dimension Data had focused on the East yes. with the Australia and Datacraft acquisition, That's which right. which I was part of uh, the capital raise, and Persol had gone to Europe where mm-hmm. that bought Telemation. Mm-hmm. So between the two, you know, uh, John said, you know, it's, it's crazy, but the two biggest entities in the world are South Africans. And then what actually happened, what actually got Dimension Data to be recognized as a, a, as a networking business only is they went into negotiations to merge. And actually, the, the initial discussion was a merger. Mm-hmm. Then it was a discussion about Persitol buying out Dimension Data's networking operation. Mm-hmm. And eventually what actually happened was Persitol sold its networking operations to Dimension Data. Uh-huh. The consequence was that Rumonance made more money out of Dimension Data than any of the Dimension Data executives ever did. <laughs> that was what people don't actually know because wow. Ru was such um, a... Um, a quiet, unassuming guy. Yes. So he did. He sold for shares, and he never held his shares. So he didn't go through the boom and bust. And he and he and he confidentially told me why, but uh, it didn't surprise me. I mean, culturally, these these guys couldn't. Mm. So, were Ord and so, Barnett's keen competitors? Yes, they were keen. They were respectful of one another, but completely different styles. Yeah, I mean, Rue uh, was quite, you know, um, you know, conservative. Um, Old school Afrikaans. Yeah, very almost Calvinist in his right. in his approach. I mean, he had a regulation because we'll go how Ruma actually founded his business because it's also uh, incredible. But um, on the one, Ru would say, "Listen, guys, to his executives, mm. if you're successful, that's great. I really want us all to be successful because it's um, it's demonstrative of what we've done." But don't land up coming to office in a sports car. I'll fire you. <laughs> I said, you can buy a nice sedan mm-hmm. and you can get good. But I don't want customers looking at your car and saying, geez, I paid for that. Mm. I don't want the poor tech guy who earns, you know, a hundredth of what you earn to say, geez, I'm getting, uh, I'm getting legged over here. I said, so that is the culture, mm. you know, whereas on the other side, you know, the cricket, the, you know, it was a lot more flashy, yeah. a lot more marketing orientated. So, um, and so the cultures were extremely different. Mm, interesting. But Rue uh, controlled the structure. He had executives and, you know, he, he, they did what he told them. Jeremy uh, was a captain that had a team. And they participated, even though he made the decisions at the end, like a good captain does, but it was much more of a participative business. Yes. Interesting. Do you think that culture got them into trouble, uh, especially the flashy part of it, Um, especially when they went after um, the U.S. market and it got them burnt? Do you think they were too gung-ho? I think uh, I did have a discussion at the time with, uh, I I wasn't an analyst anymore, but I did think going into the U.S., was a mistake, mm. um, especially at the. Peak and I wouldn't of it. call it, um, you know, flashy. Uh, uh, it was a little bit of hubris. All right. Um, you know, you know, you've now listed, and you know, you can do anything. Mm. And I think where they got it wrong. And the share price was was up here. They were listed. It, it I mean, been easy for this to go to your head. They'd raised a billion dollars, I think. Yeah. Yeah. A billion dollars, of which I think they spent two thirds of that on this acquisition. Mm-hmm. So, a, you know, the bet was too big. Secondly. And I tried to, uh, to, to, to express this, but 
you know, when I sold Dimension Data in the US, I said, uh, this is an emerging market IT company. Mm. Because they said, you know, they do outsourcing, they do networking, they do software. What is this thing? Mm -hmm. You know, we're not used to companies like that. You're either in networking or you're in software or you're in outsourcing. And I said, it's different in emerging markets. And I said, by the way, I believe Europe is an emerging market in IT context. Mm -hmm. I said, what does that mean? It means that in those markets, it's about trust. So the client trusts the service provider. And therefore, based on that trust, they go, okay, I've bought a mainframe from you. What about this? Uh, what about the network? What should I do? And they keep asking that provider for more and more. Mm. And so you grow your percentage share in that client rather than in the US where it's all about deep, deep specialization and pricing. Mm. And mm. I believe that culturally, um, even though we uh, speak English and they speak English, and I think that was the attraction, mm. you know, and of course it's the biggest global market, and I think that was the problem. I think Dimension Data would have done far better had they bought an entity in Brazil. Right. Or India. Right. And actually, funnily enough, Rumonitz, just before he was he sold the uh, networking business to Dimension Data, which gave them the critical mass mm -hmm. for the UK listing, was uh, in deep discussions, second, third cautionary, to buy a networking business in Brazil. And I believe that would have been the right decision. Interesting, interesting. Was the US business called Proxicom? It was called Proxicom. It was Proxicom. Good memory. And it was a lemon that they bought. I mean, it was at the peak of the dot-com bubble. They paid a huge PE multiple for this business. And once they'd bought it, they discovered that not, not worth what they paid for. And what they did is they found that they then landed up having all of these offices across the United States mm. that had long-term leases. And that's what killed them. Oh, dear. So actually, Brett Dawson, if you remember Brett. I do. Brett was brought in as the uh, CEO of Invest uh, Internet Solutions. Mm -hmm. And you know, Brett, an intelligent guy, you know, uh, um, kept um, criticizing the decision and what was uh, being done. Again, this is hearsay sure. within, uh, within the man class. So Jeremy said, well, if you're so bloody clever, why don't you go fix it up? And that's what he did. Okay. And he did such a good job that, that on his return, he was essentially made uh, the managing director of Dementia Data. Fascinating. Yeah, he, he came in uh, for, there was a business that launched as a spin-off of IS, I think. It was involved in some specific area of networking that Brett uh, Dawson was asked to look at. I think it was some VPN business, Link something. That's right, yes. That, that he brought. And then he became the MD of Internet Solutions and then eventually of the entire group. I first met Brett when he was a financial manager, uh, CFO designate of, uh, of, uh, at Anglovile Industries in uh, the biscuit business. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Again, you know, it's a talented guy. He's still, very, on, it's still around. I see him on Twitter uh, from time to time. He's another, and there, he yeah. is on various boards and, uh, okay. and, and really, I think, that's involved right. He's on the board of Ultron, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, yeah. Mm. Mm. So he's still, still, we should actually get him on the show. He'd be he's a great, he's a great personality. Interesting to chat to. But there were some, some really amazing, um, talented people who came through Dimension Data over the years. And one of those was, of course, David Frankel, who... Um, joined the group through the acquisition of Internet Solutions. And he also played quite a pivotal role in, in building Dimension Data into to what it is today. And he's gone off and now has a very, very successful career in the U.S. as a venture capitalist. Um, what's, what's your take on, on the IS acquisition and how that changed Dimension Data? Yeah. 
at that, at that stage, you know, the, the world of the internet was just uh, coming to the fore. Mm. In fact, funny story, uh, I was the first analyst to actually start sending out their reports on something called email. Okay. <laughs> All my colleagues used to arrive at five o'clock in the morning and fax it to their clients. <laughs> and so the company had no email address. I used to have an icon address, which actually was Internet yes. Solutions. I remember that. Which actually started as Mosaic, and Mosaic became Icon. And I've still got my uh, icon same address. icon. And I used to send out my reports. And, you know, uh, and because I was dealing with IT analysts on the other side, you know, they also had their personal IT. Mm. Got into a lot of compliance problems for that afterwards. <laughs> but, you know, so... Um, Internet Solutions was the pioneer of the time. You know, they were based there in Rosebank, if you recall. You yes, know, it was yes. a, a couple of 25, uh, a whole bunch of 25. It was Ronnie Apteka and his brother, Alon Apteka. Yeah. I think Alon was the MD, joint MD with David, if I remember right. That's right, Alon. But Ronnie actually started Internet Solutions. He was the founder. Uh, uh, but Lior Atti was the financial director. That's right. And so the, n none of them uh, actually, they were all below 30. Yeah. All straight of university, and they decided to start this up. Yeah, and uh, I, 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 was, I, I was, might get my numbers yeah, wrong, but yeah. uh, Dimension Data bought the first twenty-five percent for twenty-five million rand, and this thing made losses. So you know, mm. yeah. I think they, the, I think they paid four hundred million rand for the rest of three hundred and seventy-five. Three seventy-five. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there we go. You know, so you <laughs> know, uh, and it was only like nine months later, and people said, you know, this is absolutely crazy, yeah. and they got paid in shares, which then actually so. The, the, the boys made a, a, a great amount of money. In fact, there's a great story that um, um, uh, Alon, on the day that they did the deal, went to, the, uh, went to Sun City and, uh, yes, and put, put some coins in the machine and won, and won the million rand jackpot at Sun City <laughs> yes. on the same day. And I think it was his birthday as well. For, and that's, <laughs> and that's, <laughs> Incredible stuff. So it, it really did change uh, the Mac. It, hmm. And it also... Um, it gave them scale. It gave them uh, a foothold in terms of this new thing called mm -hmm. um, uh, the internet. And it actually brought in a whole bunch of uh, young, dynamic people. Because David uh, was immediately uh, brought in and put on the Dimension Data yeah. Board. So they really broadened the, the intellectual base mm -hmm. of the business. It was an incredible acquisition, successful. and mm -hmm. it took, But it did take a good few years to justify the price that they paid. Yeah, yeah. But in hindsight, worth every cent. Worth every cent. Worth every cent. Um, yeah, Alan, Alan um, didn't Alan become a professional bridge player? Wasn't he a Springbok bridge player? He did yeah. and uh, disappeared off the scenes, but he uh, has been doing some, he's a very, again, a low-key guy. He's still around. Uh, he is around mm. um, and he's got some, he's in the investment world, you know, uh, um, uh, he doesn't really, I know one or two of his investments because yeah. I come across his name, okay. but you know, he's very discreet. And Ronnie moved to U the Ukraine about a year before the war started there, and I believe he had to flee. He was there when the tr the Russians came Invaded. across the border. Mm. You know, I've tried to, I've had one contact with him, and it was, the response was, look, I just actually can't talk about it. Right. And uh, I, th I really do believe, and there was some, he did put out some things on the he on had social a blog media. Briefly, yeah. And um, I, th I think he'd made a big personal investment because Ukrainian IT was actually really on the up. It was mm -hmm. probably a very good decision mm -hmm. from, from a tech point of view. But um, in terms of whether he's been back, in terms of where, uh, he's really just yeah. um, gone under the radar on that front. Mm -hmm. some, some real characters, though, from, from, from those uh, 
days. This may also be apocryphal, and you, you, know, you hear these stories over the years, so just um, uh, take this with a pinch of salt. But I, I heard as well that David Frankel was offered the CEO job of Dimension Data and turned it down and uh, went and then went across to the to the U.S., you know, paving the way for the appointment of Brett Dawson as CEO. I don't know if you've heard that story as well. Uh, but um, but Dave Frankel's gone off. He's what's his company called? Do you remember? I can't no. recall. But he, he, he I did. Th- I do think he wanted to emigrate. I, yeah. I certainly believe that uh, he was uh, destined to 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 run the business. Mm. Whether it was actually offered it or not, I, I, I'm not privy to that. Sure. But he certainly was being groomed for the role. But um, you know, David was an incredible. I remember um, going to a conference, a Merrill Lynch conference, and I'd invited. Uh, Interalia, David, and mm. um, and then we flew back um, from New York. You know the long flight, the SAA flight, the direct long oh, flight. Yes. And uh, I remember it was quite funny. You know, um, there were there were two lights on the entire night. You know, it was mine and his. Okay. We didn't sleep. We just actually worked the whole night. Wow. He was an incredibly hard worker, mm-hmm. but he's done incredible things um, in the U.S. I haven't really been in touch, yeah. but I, kn- I know one story that uh, didn't come from him directly, and that's uh, they were early investors. His fund was an early investor in Uber. Oh, wow. And oh, apparently wow. the guy in the first round of capital, the, w- one of the founders knocked, a- knocked on his door, and David had a plan to catch. Mm-hmm. And he literally said, I've got 10 minutes. And he said, he couldn't get this guy to shut up. So listen, I've got to go. I've got to go. And, kept, and the guy was persistent. Eventually, you know, uh, he said, you know what? I'll take two million or whatever it is um, just to shut you up. I've got to go. <laughs> to and it landed up being probably the single, at, at that day, the single best investment it ever made. You know, so, uh, you know, I guess... Um, you know, if you're in the game yeah. and you're active, you know, opportunities will come your way. But yeah. he, he really was one of the cleverest um, intellectually IQ guys that I've met in the industry. So Dimension Data went through a fantastic time in the 1990s. I remember he, Jeremy was the talk of the town for, for years. Uh, he was on the cover of the FM and other publications. Fin Week, I think, or Finances and Technique, I think it was called back then um, and uh, you know he was the toast of corporate South Africa and then Proxycom happened then the dot-com bubble burst and things got pretty dire and Dimension Data almost went to the wall um, what, what is your view of the way they managed that period that the first decade of the century they really did go through an, an awful period um, Brett Dawson of course pulled them through it as the CEO um, but there was a whole team there. What, what is your take of that period in their history? Well, and uh, there was the tech, uh, the tech bubble burst yep. in the early 2000s. And, you know, at the time I was running a portfolio. And let me tell you, on that day, um, we probably had a portfolio of 20 companies. And basically it hit the fan in every single one of those. It, it, it affected mm. every single one of those businesses in a different way. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you had 20 crises. Uh, and even solid businesses um, just basically were priced for failure. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at Cisco, I think if I'm not mistaken, they might have been the first tech company to hit a trillion-dollar market cap. And I think even today, I think it, it, is reco- it is proven to be a great business. It recovered to maybe, the last time I looked, it was maybe $250 million market cap, uh, billion market cap. So still a great company. But it was probably never – the problem is none of these things were worth what they were yeah. priced at. And so that was the first impact. 
you know, post uh, Y2K and the the the, the heyday of uh, you know all the 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 money that people made. So the first thing is, you know, <clears throat> success was like shooting fish in the barrel for the IT guys in the nineties. Mm. I mean, I'd like to say maybe because I was the first and I just happened to 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 uh, to identify a sector, but and I had my favourites and the ones I didn't like, but even the ones I didn't like mm. did extremely well. So mm. you know what, you couldn't get it wrong. Mm. So. And there were a lot of listings back in in that time, and a lot of them disappeared. I, I, I did Softline, <laughs> I did uh, uh, Incredible Connection, and they just kept coming. Yeah, you know, 1998 was there was an incredible bubble on in the JSC listings bubble. That's right. In fact, it kind of preceded the dot com bubble yep. by two years, and then crashed. Yeah. Two years before the U.S. market crashed. Yeah. Almost a uh, precursor to what happened in America. Hundred. And there were companies like Global, a lot of rats and mice. Global Tech, Fairy Tech, who I was yeah. involved with. Exactly. You know, there, so there were so many of these, and uh, but so you've gone from an environment where you can't get anything wrong. And yeah. so now it starts to get hard, first yeah. of all. Yeah. Secondly, you got a, you've gone from a time where you, uh, people are throwing money at you mm-hmm. to there's no money available. Thirdly, you've just um, squandered your treasure chest on, on a bad acquisition. Yeah. So now you've actually – and now you've got this empire of businesses that are not dimension data, but they've uh, the the culmination of twenty or thirty mm. things that you've bought. Mm. Now you've got to try and actually integrate them. So this is hard work. So you actually got to uh, um, uh, get it right. And then I think the, one of the problems is Datacraft was listed in Asia. Yes. And when you looked at the balance sheet, it looked like Dimension Data had a lot of money. But a lot of the money was in a subsidiary where they couldn't uh, get access to it. Oh. So um, some of the businesses that they bought from Ruman, it's just, all of them now started to demand cash. Mm. So Brett was the right guy to to kind of bed that down, and he did a great job. But then they also, um, it looked like they were going to go insolvent. And that's when uh, Jeremy reached out to Remgro and his personal relationship with Rupert, and he got a big loan. Now, I can't remember the exact quantum, but $250 million kind of strikes uh, me as the number. And uh, again, anecdotally, I wasn't there. The deal was, um, was consummated at Leopard, at Leopard Creek. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm told that, you know, Jeremy was giving his projections and uh, Johan said, you know, I, I'm not interested in any of that you know, because I'm going to have a, if you're right, you know, I'll get my money back with my coupon. If you're wrong, I'm going to own Dimension Data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he gave a convertible loan, and uh, that convertible loan actually, when the conversion date came up, would have meant that Remgro would have owned thirty uh, in excess of thirty five, maybe even fifty percent of the company. But then they would have had to make an offer to minorities. Right. So they actually converted it to I think thirty four point nine percent, and became the single biggest shareholder in Dimension Data. Mm. Um, not. Not a, uh, a desired outcome, but you know, I don't think it was uh, an outcome that was terrible for Dimension Data. So, you know, Han Rupert really saved the business. Saved the business, but then, you know, he and I had a stake in the business, and there's a private equity guy, you know, buys and he sells companies. Mm-hmm. So, uh, his team went and uh, found a buyer, and that buyer was NTNT. Ah. Right, and uh, he negotiated that uh, without engaging with the management team. Ah, ah. And he said, after he negotiated, he said, by the way, you know, you meet the management team. 
And I, I'm led to believe that that created an enormous personal uh, um, uh, problem between the, which they subsequently, but yeah. uh, they subsequently solved. But um, you know that the deal with NTNT was a Remgro deal, which was never a management team, which okay. was kind of hard to swallow for people who'd actually created the business, taken mm -hmm. it, to, and now actually the the majority, the the controlling shareholder, not majority shareholder, was was Remgro and. They essentially uh, sold it, and NTNT bought it, not for the dimension data, but for specific pockets. And most primarily was the data craft business. They wanted that Asian footprint. Interesting, interesting. But subsequently, they've decided they went through a review process in recent years, looking at potentially spinning out and selling the dimension data, the traditional dimension data, Middle East and Africa. They didn't business. potentially look at it. It was uh, actually it was on the cards, it yeah. was on, on on paper. Yeah. Um, that they had essentially decided pre-COVID that they were going to exit, partially exit, mm -hmm. um, the African Middle East area. Do you have insight into why they changed their mind? You know what? Um, COVID happened. They put a moratorium on, on deal flow. Mm -hmm. You know, COVID changed the world. CEO changed at NTNT. And yes. so you come in, you know, so um, I don't think there was anything other than, you know, circumstances in the world changed, leadership changed. Mm -hmm. And when they reevaluated, they said, this is not a clever idea. So they changed their mind, mm -hmm. which are, in my view, absolutely entitled to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. The the NTT team seemed to take quite a hands-off approach post the acquisition. They left the management team in place to run with the business for for many years mm -hmm. and only actually only seemed to have become more, more um, involved uh, in the last three, four years or so. Do you think that was the right approach by NTT from the start? It's their style, you mm -hmm. know, and, you know, these big, uh, these big multinationals, they've got to do things in that way. Jeremy was the chairman of the entire yes. um, uh, stream. Yeah, executive chairman. Uh, uh, executive chairman. And I think one of the issues, because what unfortunately happened, and I've been through that in my personal career, you know, so... The executives in NTNT take a decision that they're probably going to uh, disinvest out of South Africa. Mm. So management, and it's pretty widely known, it's not engaged with their team and said, well, if you're going to do that, well, we'd like to do an MBO. Yes. So that discussion started. Yes. New executive comes in and said, this is, tre this is uh, treason. <laughs> but it wasn't initiated by the, the team. Yeah. So I think, and, and actually when Macquarie first South sold to Macquarie, I found myself in exactly that situation. You know, you, you start off with an idea, it's endorsed, people change, and all of a sudden you're no longer in, the, you, 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 you're seen, uh, seen as treachery. And why would it have been seen as treacherous? Well, because if you're a buyer, if you're a buyer, you're probably negotiating hard. Yes. And so if I was sitting on the other side, and I'm just speculating. Sure. And these guys, and they've been running my business, I've been paying their salary, they're there at, at my base. Mm -hmm. Now they want to steal the business for, for two cents. You know, this is, uh, they're not loyal to me. And so when Jeremy's... So relations started to break down. So when Jeremy's uh, uh, reappointment as chairman came up, they, they chose not to reappoint, which I thought, mm -hmm. you know, um, notwithstanding what has happened, you know, mm -hmm. there are ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. And at that point, Jeremy and his entire team just said, okay, well, our time is finished. Yeah. And I think it was two years ago, um, it was mid-year. We, we actually had an interview uh, post that. I think yeah. it was June... 2021. Okay. Were you surprised uh, by the lawsuit that NTT filed against the former executives, including Ord, related to the sale of the campus? Um, 
What, what was your initial thought when you heard the story? When lawyers are involved, I'm not surprised about anything. <laughs> and I'm involved in actually a number of, uh, uh, as, as, as an expert witness, in a number of uh, different uh, situations mm -hmm. at the moment. So I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm not surprised from that point of view. I was surprised at the allegations. Mm -hmm. You know, these are people that I've dealt with uh, for a long time, mm -hmm. people who made a lot of money and certainly didn't need to do anything illicit mm -hmm. um, that, to make a few extra dime. Having said that, you know, um, you know, uh, if you run a business as if it's yours and it's no longer yours, you might take things for granted. So hopefully, there's a paper trail that that says that you know these things were all uh, all known by the execs, and I suspect that's the case. But those execs, I also know that in a corporate, you know, you half your staff leaves every three years. Yeah. So you might have been engaging with uh, with with a number of people, you know. They were might have been well aware of these things. That doesn't mean that the new people that they have come in mm -hmm. uh, don't think that this is a bit strange when they look at it mm -hmm. through different lens. So I certainly don't think there was any intent. You know, I don't actually. Uh, I think intent you're wasting money. Okay. Um, because the only thing that suffers here is your brand. Yeah. And I can't understand how this thing couldn't have been resolved outside of, uh, and again, uh, you know, you get avaricious advisors. Mm -hmm. It's in their best interest to, to really uh, blow it up. But I don't have the facts. Well, let's see if it ever gets to court. Um no one's been found guilty yet. Let's, let's, see, let's see if there's an out-of-court settlement, which I personally think is probably more likely than all this dirty laundry being aired in a public courtroom. But uh, we'll know soon enough. Um, the, the, the matter is still enrolled at the court currently as of this uh, recording. So uh, we'll see what happens. And but, I see also the dimension data name will, be, uh, will vanish. Yes, it's already gone. Yeah, so th that, that yeah. is, to me, probably the saddest of the lot. Yeah. Great South African brand, yeah. which is no longer, no longer around.